Thanks, Paul. It's got to be one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. It's one of my, and I wanted him to read that just to balance out what we're going to be looking at this morning. <laughs> but um, it's just, every time I hear it and the way Paul read it, it was just so moving. I really appreciate that. And uh, I want to thank Andrew for playing the drums for us this morning. That's fantastic. So, how many of you knew the, the hymn, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing? Just out of curiosity. Okay. That is like the, I grew up with that. That's the number one hymn in the Methodist hymnal. It's a Charles Wesley hymn, and it's like a Methodist anthem. You know, we probably sing it probably once a month. And uh, it's like, boy, this brings back real memories. <laughs> Never heard it with drums, though, I got to say. That, that was actually a nice touch. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for those promises that you've given us out of, out of your word that um, this idea of union with Jesus and this idea of this long-range plan that you have, um, that you knew from the very beginning to bring about to restore us to yourself, that mystery of Christ uh, is all and in all. Uh, can't even think about what that means, um, but we humbly submit to it and we humbly submit to you your will. And we thank you for the promises of the scriptures who give us assurance, that gives us uh, peace, that gives us wholeness, uh, that instructs us on, on how to live and how to uh, interact and how to um, promote and, and um, develop good, solid, stable relationships because you have loved us first. And so, Father, we're asking that you take your word this morning, this inspired form of, portion of Scripture that challenges us and that you use it to uh, move in our hearts and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And we thank you for the book of Hebrews that has uh, thrown so much light and, and glorifies the Son of God and just what he has done and what he will do and what he's doing now among us. So, Father, we submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures, but we submit because they are inspired by you. We submit ourselves to your authority and, uh, and give you permission to move inside of our hearts and our minds to transform them and help us to see clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was talking with Kendra this, this week about the, uh, the passage... Uh, about this, this Sunday service, I told her this was, the, um, this was the passage, this was the section that I was dreading from the very beginning. That from the very beginning of doing, the, in fact, it's probably part of the reasons I didn't want to do a, a study on Hebrews was because of this passage. And I told her I thought about uh, skipping it and hoping nobody would notice. Uh, but, <laughs> but I decided, no, I, I've got to deal with it. We've got to look at it. It's, um, it's a little weighty. And, uh, and uh, heavy and sticky. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you to listen to another um, story, that, uh, part of a story that I'd like for you to keep in mind as we work through this chapter. Okay? Uh, this, this chapter of uh, this section of Hebrews, chapter 10. It's uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
And it's when the, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver after Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, has disappeared, and they're looking to rescue him. He's been taken by the, the white witch. But Mr. Beaver, said Lucy, can we, I mean, must we do something to save him? It's too dreadful, and it's all on my account. I don't doubt that you'd save him if you could, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver, but you have no chance of getting into that house against her. We'll never come out alive. Well, couldn't we have a, some stratagem, said Peter? I mean, couldn't we dress up as something or pretend to be or peddlers or anything or watch till she's gone out or, or hang it all out to, to, there to must be some way. This fawn saved my sister at his own risk, Mr. Beaver. We can't just leave him to be, to be, you know, to have that done to him. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move, then I'm going to jump over here. And they say they want to know who Aslan is. It says, you'll understand when you see him, she said. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then if we jump over, after they meet him, they say, he says, go on, whispered Mr. Beaver. No, whispered Peter, you first. No, son of Adam before animals, whispered Mr. Beaver. Susan whispered to Peter, what about you, ladies first? No, you're the oldest, whispered Susan. And of course, the longer they went on doing this, the more awkward they felt. And then at last, Peter re realized that it was up to him, and he drew his sword, raised it to a salute, and hastily saying to the others, come on, pull yourself together, and he advanced toward the lion. We have come, Aslan. Welcome, Peter, son of Adam, said Aslan. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. Welcome, he beaver, she beaver. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. And they now felt glad and quiet. And it didn't seem awkward to stand there and say nothing. But where's the fourth, asked Aslan. Well, he has tried to betray them and he has joined the white witch, oh, Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. And then something made Peter say, that's partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him, and I think that helped him go wrong. And Aslan said nothing, either to excuse Peter or to blame him, but merely stood looking at him with his great unchanging eyes, and it seemed to all of them that there was nothing else to be said. Keep that in mind, that picture of the king. Is he safe? No, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. He's the king of all. When we get to the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus in this book. And he takes us through from the very beginning. We see from the very beginning him talking about the true human being, the Son of Man, who is, who is made greater than the angels, 
and he has come as a king, and he sits at the right, home, right throne, right, the right hand, I'm sorry, the right hand of the throne of God, the God Almighty. And then this king becomes the great high priest, not out of a bloodline like Levi, but out of the order of Melchizedek, appointed by God, who now has an eternal ministry before God, interceding for us. He is in the Holy of Holies, not the, not the copy of the Holy of Holies, like you see in the temple or the tabernacle, the author says, but the real Holy of Holies in the very presence of God. This is who it is. And then by this, the priest himself has offered himself as a sacrifice. And as we saw last week, the, 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 the emphasis is there on the blood of Christ that, that has, has guaranteed our forgiveness. And last week we saw that, that, the, that it culminates in this whole passage in chapter 10. The whole book sort of kind of piles on right here in chapter 10. And he says, and this is who you are. You are a forgiven people who are called to worship Yahweh, to hold firm to that hope in your heart, and to fan the flames of love and good works in each other. This is who you are. But he's not through yet. And he goes on to say, now remember who you are. Stay with it. And so then we get in this last section of chapter 10. And I mentioned before that there had been warning passages peppered throughout the book. And we looked specifically at chapter 6 several weeks ago. But we're coming to chapter 10. And each warning passage gets stronger and stronger and weightier and weightier. And chapter 10 is by far the strongest, by far the weightiest. And so we look at that. And so I've entitled this, Do We Have to Talk About Judgment? And as much as I didn't want to, yes, we do. We have to talk about judgment on this. There are the beavers having their conversation uh, about Aslan, and I want you to keep that in mind, this idea of a lion who isn't safe, but he's good. And that's the kind of picture I think Hebrews chapter 10 is showing us this morning. So, this is who we are, and now he's saying, remember who we are. Remember who you are, lest you face judgment. That's what his first paragraph is about. And then the second paragraph, he will talk about, remember who you are, because this is what you're looking forward to. Remember who you are, because you are headed somewhere good. You are going somewhere good. So we're going to divide it up into two sections. First of all, verses 26 through 31. And let me go ahead and read that. And I'm kind of reading my own translation here because I think it's each, each phrase is meaty and weighty. He says, for, we, for if we deliberately continue sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, no further sacrifice for sins remains for us. The only thing that remains is the fearful prospect of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. Someone who rejected the law of Moses would be put to death without mercy on the testimony of two to three witnesses. How much greater punishment do you think that person deserves who has contempt for the Son of God, who profanes the blood of the covenant that made him holy and insults the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people, is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now you know why I wanted Ephesians chapter 1 read. It's a heavy chapter. And each phrase is, needs to be important. And I, I don't like doing this very often, but I think we, here we have to do it because each phrase is weighty, it is loaded, and it's very vague. And so I wanted to look at each phrase, each phrase in these first couple of verses because we need to define a few things and see where we're going. 
And hopefully you understand this. And I, it's fuzzy. And like I said, it's vague. And I'm just going to do the best I can. Okay? Uh, I'm going to try to explain what I think this is saying. And it's the best I can do this morning. Uh, I said this once before years ago. And uh, we had a, a guy in the, in the congregation come up to me afterward and says, I don't care what you think. I want to hear what God says. Well, I understand that. But for now, you're going to have to hear what I think. Okay? And uh, what I think is the best, what I feel like is the best explanation for some of these phrases. If we deliberately keep on sinning, he starts off. And what, in, in the original Greek, there's, there's only really like four words here. There's the four, but then there's this participle in the present that kind of implies a continuous activity of sinning. That's all it says, sinning. And then there's the, the adverb that describes it, which is deliberately or knowingly or voluntarily sinning. And then the last word is the pronoun we. Okay? And what I think he's getting at here is, is that, yes, a lot of sin is deliberate and knowing, is willful. I agree. But I think what he's getting at here is something very, very specific. It's not just sinning in general. He's getting to something very weighty. And if we look at those other warning passages, especially chapter 6, I believe he's talking about apostasy here. He has just described what Jesus has done for us, this great price of forgiveness, this blood that brought forgiveness to us, and he tells us who we are. And so I, have, I think he's talking something specifically about rejecting that, that rejecting Christ as the Savior. And, the, and, he, and one more observation here, he includes himself. We. That we are all vulnerable to this. All of us can fall into this. All of us are capable of turning our back and going towards idolatry or legalism or just forgetting the whole thing, turning our back on Christ. Any, any of us in this room are, very, are vulnerable, are capable of this. The second phrase is after receiving the knowledge of truth. Every time this phrase is used, it's not talking about just mere information. He is talking about genuine experiential knowledge. People who have known the truth, they have experienced the saving grace of Jesus. Everywhere this phrase is mentioned, it's about knowing experientially what this truth is. In other words, my point is, we're talking true believers here. We're not talking people who have just kind of, you know, maybe on the, on the margins of a church, and they kind of, okay, they say they believe, but they really don't believe, or they're really not really sure. We're talking about people who have actually experienced the grace of God. We're talking about true believers here. The next phrase, no further sacrifice for sins remain. When you turn your back on Christ, you have cut off your rescue path. You have cut off any chance of rescue. You have cut off your, your, your availability of redemption and saving. Now, before we go any further, I want to be sure that we know that when we're talking about saving in Hebrews, we're not talking about eternal destiny. We're talking about something else. And we'll get to that a little bit later. He says, the only thing that remains is fearful prospect of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. The only thing that remains, your, your escape route has been blocked off if you turn your way. Your only way of doing this, of, of, of going on living this, has been blocked off. You have turned your back on it. You have cut off your escape route. The only thing that remains then is fearful prospect of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. Pretty heavy stuff. 
So what he's talking about here, what I think he's talking about here, is that what remains is a judgment here and now, temporal, present judgment. And it, what's worse, there are worse things than death. And we got to remember when we look back at chapter 6 and we talked about the fury of fire, the normal metaphor for fire is purification. It's actually implying purification, restoration. In chapter 6, he talked about burning the field. He's talked about a field that can receive the rain and it will either produce blessing or it will produce thorns and thistles. And if it produces thorns and thistles, then it is burned. Why is it burned? so that it can be used again. It burns the enemies of God, which are the thorns and the thistles. This is what he is talking about. This is judgment here. It is severe, and it is sure. The question is then, why? Why would he do this? We have to understand what Christ did. We have to understand that the true human being in person came to the earth. And Yahweh in person came to the earth. As Israel's representative, he took on the failings of all of his people. He knew, Jesus realized that he was destined for a task that only he could do. And so evil does everything it possibly can and then God does everything he possibly can. And what does he do? He takes it all on himself. He takes our political evil. He takes social evil. He takes moral evil, religious evil, spiritual evil, social evil, everything that's there, all rolled into one, and he takes it upon himself. And he takes the downward spiral on himself and evil does all it can. The cross is the symbol of now where we, where we meet God, no longer in the temple. The cross is the symbol of a pagan empire who exercises brute force to destroy the representative of God. And this brute force is met with another different force who actually wins the day who wins through the resurrection. This is what happened. And we have to understand what happened, what did Jesus do? And then he goes on to explain why this is serious. He says, first of all, he says, when you turn your back and when you, you, you go after idolatry instead of Christ and you turn your back on Christ after knowing the truth, you are trampling him on under your feet. The representative of human beings, the representative of Yahweh, Yahweh himself, you are trampling them under your feet. Some of the translations read spurn or jilted. He's not some jilted boyfriend. It is, is the idea of crushing and grinding. And then he goes on to say, after this long exposition in, the, in chapter 10 about the blood of Christ, then he says, okay, now you're saying that the blood of Christ is unclean. It's ceremonial unclean. It's more than just saying the animals are unclean. It's now saying the blood of Yahweh himself is unclean. 
And then he goes on to say that you are also insulting the Holy Spirit. You're outraging the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the one, the one person of the Trinity who applies the blood of Christ, who applies the forgiveness, who affects the forgiveness of God, you are insulting him. He also is the one who gives the body of Christ its gifts and its fruit. It's also the one who holds the body of Christ together. You are insulting him. And I think what he's getting at here that it not only affects you personally, but it affects the community. It affects the body of Christ. It's, some of you may remember the Aesop's table we learned in elementary school about the dog in the manger. If you remember that, that that's, that's became an expression that we hear, or at least we hear in the South sometimes, it's the, he's the dog in the manger. And what that means is, if you remember the fable, the dog goes in this, in this manger and he, and he wants to lay down in the hay. He doesn't eat the hay, he just wants to lay down on it. And then when the animals come to feed, he barks and drives them away. In other words, he, doesn't, he can't enjoy the hay, but he doesn't want anybody else to enjoy it either. Well, this apostate is a person who doesn't want to enjoy the feast and he doesn't want anybody else to enjoy the feast either. So this is why it is so important. And he says it is severe. It is even more severe than the Old Testament. And he says in the Old Testament, um, you, could, you could receive capital punishment on the basis of two or three witnesses. But this is even worse. And there are worse things than death. And I would point to King Saul to show this. King Saul rebelled. He didn't receive the capital punishment. But what he did get was he spent the last years of his life in fear and hatred and revenge and complete paranoia. And he says, this is the kind of thing you're facing. Remember who you are, because this is the kind of thing you're facing. And then he goes on to, he uses Deuteronomy chapter 32 to explain and kind of give some scriptural support of this. And when he mentions it, he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We have to look at the whole context. Paul uses that same phrase to say, don't look for revenge yourself. Leave it up to God. This is God's, this is God's realm. This is God's business. Don't you mess with this. Don't you mess with revenge. Well, now the, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. And when the writer cites a passage, we have to go back and look at the whole thing. Because papyrus was real expensive. They're not going to write out the whole thing. They're just going to kind of give you a clue. And so you go back to the whole passage and you see God chastising Israel because they have turned their back and gone after idolatry. And he says, you have tasted the bitter fruit of idolatry. And he does chastise them. He does judge them. But all with the purpose, he says, because I want to restore you to me. He says, you have tasted the bitter fruit of idolatry and you have found that it enslaves you. Don't you realize that I am the one who heals? And so this whole context of Deuteronomy chapter 32 is that, yes, they are chastised because they have gone after slaves and been enslaved by slavery, but God's saying, I'm the one who heals. And I think that's exactly what the book of Hebrews is telling us here, that I am the one who heals. Don't go running after idols. Don't go running after false gods. Don't go turning your back on the Savior because I'm the one who heals. And I think he follows that pattern exactly in the last half of this section, the last half of this chapter. Remember who you are because he's also taking you somewhere good. 
you're headed somewhere good. There is hope that we hold on to. Let's read this last section of the, script, of the chapter. But recall those earlier days when you were enlightened. You endured a harsh conflict of suffering. At times you were publicly exposed and abused and, afflic and afflictions, and at other times you came and shared with others who were treated the same way. For in fact, you shared in the sufferings of those in prison, and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings without losing your joy, because you know that you, that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence, because it is a great reward. It has a great reward, for you need endurance in order to do God's will, and so receive what is promised. For just a little longer, and he who is coming will arrive and not delay, but my righteous, will, righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I take no pleasure in him. But we are not among those who shrink back and thus are ruined. We are among those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's telling them that they have something good. And he, looked, he tells them, look at the past. Look at where you were. You were so brave. Remember the bravery that you had? You, you, even though you were publicly embarrassed and publicly ridiculed, you stood up and you were brave. And even though you suffered affliction and possible torture and pain, you stood up, you were brave. And he says, even when they took away your property and they confiscated your property, you didn't lose your, you didn't lose your joy because you knew you had permanent possession of something better. He loved, the author of Hebrews loves that word better, by the way. This is always better. And he says, remember those days? And he says, not only that, not only did you suffer and you were brave, when you weren't suffering and, and the rest of the body and other parts of the body were suffering, you stood in solidarity with them. You lived with them and you stood up with them. You, you joined arms with them even though you weren't the one being attacked. And he says, even those in prison, and I, I really believe that the author here is referring to himself here, that he's saying that when I was in prison, you came and lived with me. You came and stood up with me. You stood in solidarity with me. Remember those days? And he says, this is the hope that we have. In verse 36 and 37, he says, you need to go on. You need to endure. So when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. He says, you will go on because you will receive what is promised. There is a better reward and he goes on to say, this is how you do the will of God. Endurance is not indispensable for your eternal salvation, your life. But it is essential for successful living. And I think that's what he's saying here, that this is essential for successful living. And he uses a quote from Habakkuk where he's saying, to the, to the Jews in, in Habakkuk, hold on, just hold on, because God will judge the Chaldeans. He will save you from them. And now he's using this verse to say, hold on, because Jesus will come. He will save you from this. This is our hope. This is what we hold on to. Preserve and preserve. And, and when you preserve, you will preserve what you have gained. And he closes out the, the verse in verse 39, in a very pastoral way, he says, yeah, all this is dangerous, all this is vulnerable, but hey, we're going to hang on to the end, aren't we? We're going to do this to the end because we will avoid our ruin 
and we'll preserve what we have gotten. We have preserved what we gained. I, the, the NIV, I think, made a very unfortunate decision here. They translate it, but those who believe are, and are saved. It says, says, but those who, who shr don't shrink back and are destroyed. We are not those who shrink back and destroyed, but we are those who believe and are saved. It's actually preserving your soul. That's what it literally says. And I think it's referring to what, like Jesus said, he says, if you want to gain your life, you lose it. You want to know your life is really rich, you're going to have to lose it. And it's very counterintuitive, but that's what Jesus is saying. And I think that's what the book of Hebrews is saying here too. We can preserve our soul. I mean, we live in a, we live in a time where we've seen a lot of people sell out their soul for money, politics, power, whatever. And he's saying, hang on, hang on, and you'll preserve your soul. It doesn't nullify the warning, but he's saying, this is where you'll find shalom. This is where you'll find peace. This is where you'll find your inheritance, the rest. This is all about living successfully and living in the will of God. That is a lot of stuff in there. I agree. I, I, I apologize for trying to be trying to tear it apart, but now I want to put it back together. And I think we can put it all together with just a couple of general statements here. First of all, God mirrors back to us the condition of our own heart. That when we have a hard heart, we're going to see God with a hard heart. If we've turned our back on the Savior, then when we look at Jesus, we don't, when we turn our back on the shepherd, when we look at Jesus as shepherd, we don't see a shepherd. What we see is an angry judge. And God mirrors that back to us. I think that's the idea when, in Exodus when God says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it also says that I hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think what he's saying is that Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And when you have a hard heart, you look to God and that's what you're going to see. You're going to get back what you see. And when we, when we turn away from Jesus, we don't see the shepherd. We see an angry judge. God is absolutely free. He is free to forgive because of what Jesus did on the cross. But he's also free to do what he needs to do. I don't like talking about God's judgment. I don't. And I don't like to think about God being the judge. But hey, he's free to do what he wants. He's God. He is good. He may not be safe, but he's good. And when you think about it, we wouldn't want God any other way. I mean, any God who, who, uh, who closes his eyes to wickedness, any God who kind of rationalizes somebody else's hypocrisy or really has no illusion of confronting evil and, and sin, that person is not worthy of the name God, is he? He is free to do this. He is free to confront evil the way he wants to. And even as parents, we know that. Any parent, and I know I've done this, where you see a child running out into the street, you're going to grab him by the elbow and jerk him back and probably yell at him, probably yell at the, and yell at the car too, yell at both of them, and all that angry is an expression of concern. Well, God is free to grab me by the elbow and jerk me back into the yard and yell at me. Amen. 
if it's going to keep me from running out into the street in front of a car. God is absolutely free to be who he is. The only thing that limits God is his own character. Jesus is the one to whom every knee shall bow. Eventually, every knee will bow to him. He is the king. He may not be safe, but he is the king, and every knee will bow to him eventually. Better to do it now. And I really wonder how we would live if we really, truly practiced and believed that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. How would that change our lives? How would that change our church? if we really believed that. For one thing, we wouldn't put our trust in human leaders. We wouldn't put our trust in some program. And then when those programs and leaders fail us, we wouldn't be in despair because our king is still on the throne and every knee will bow to him. Therefore, we are to be a people who are both humble and confident. Humble because this could happen to us Every one of us is vulnerable. Every one of us can have a time where we want to turn our back on the Savior. And yet we are confident that he will come. He tells the, the, the Jews, Habakkuk tells the Jews, you, will, you need to trust that God will deal with the Chaldeans. And now the Hebrews is telling us, you need to trust that Jesus will return. And he will put things right. And that gives us confidence. But we must stay humble. We know we are vulnerable. And finally, we are going somewhere good, but it means having to go through and with the bad. We don't know what we'll face. These believers face persecution, embarrassment, confiscation of their property. We don't know what we'll face. But this hope, this hope, gives us the foundation for us to creatively interact with our culture in a Christ-like and creative way. Because we have hope. We can be disgruntled with the culture. We can complain about it. We know it's, we know it's, 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 uh, it's, in a, it's in a mess. We know our society is in a mess, all this, but this is our foundation. And with that, that, puts us, that sets us on the journey toward Christ, knowing that this is our foundation and we can interact with the culture in a very Christ-like and, and, and creative way. We are going somewhere good. We are headed to somewhere good, but it means oftentimes having to go through and with the bad. That means he wants us to endure. The, um, most of us have heard this, many of this speech before, but the night before Martin Luther King was uh, assassinated, uh, he said this. He said, and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you. I mean, how prophetic was that? I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Amen. That's perseverance. When Jesus, when Jesus went to the temple and cast out all the money changers and the thieves. You go to the temple expecting to find grace. But what he found was the temple invaded by the world. And what we see is this act of judgment. He symbolically destroys the temple. 
throwing everybody out. But John, in John's version of the story, he ties it to the resurrection. And if you look at all of those, all those words of judgment and actions of judgment that Jesus performed, it's almost always tied to the resurrection. It's always death tied to life. It's always judgment tied to restoration. It's always, it's always judgment tied with grace, that grace will eventually triumph. That there is a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth that will come from heaven through God, out of God, where every tear will be wiped away. And that causes us to hang on. That grace will eventually triumph. Faith will always prevail, every time and everywhere. In fact, Jesus makes judgment unnecessary. And this is the point I would really like to drive home this morning, is that with all this, that this warning that the, that the Hebrews is telling us, bottom line is, Jesus, with, with, with the restoration, Jesus makes judgment unnecessary. He came for anybody and anyone. The judgment is unnecessary. The only catch is that we have to be as crazy as God is to accept the deal. That's the only catch. That there's this crazy arrangement that he set up. That he takes evil on himself to save us as, as people. I mean, no God, self-respecting God, would ever do that. Except the true God. The God of Israel the God of Jacob, the God of Jesus. That's what he does. He exalts the losers over the winners. He exalts the losers who recognize that they need grace. And he exalts them over the winners who think they can do it on their own. But the truth is, the world is populated with nothing but losers. None of us are getting out of this alive. We are all losers. But grace will triumph. There is hope for all. Judgment is not necessary. So remember who you are. Remember who you are and hold on. It doesn't mean perfection. We will see that next week when we get into chapter 11. But this is the last push of the book of Hebrews, is to hang on. Judgment is not necessary. It, Jesus has made it unnecessary. So just remember who you are and hang on. Father, we thank you for the, the promises. And we thank you for stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable, but reveals who you are. Lord, we stand in awe. And we know that the only way to approach you really is on our knees. So, Father, as we sing this, I ask that you receive our humble confessions and a humble affirmation of our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.